For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is From Grumbling to Grateful. This is part three. And the text we're coming back to this morning is Colossians chapter three, verses 12 through 17. So this morning, Lord willing, we are going to conclude what has been a relatively brief look at the grumbler and the grateful. We'll conclude that this morning and we'll get back to our sequential exposition through the Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Lord willing, next week. Now first, we took some time then to consider the repulsive state, that repulsive state of being that characterizes the complainer. Grumbling or complaining has to do, as we've said, with an expression of displeasure, an expression of dissatisfaction. The word used in the New Testament describes that sinful heart attitude. Uh, And then the outward expression of that sinful heart attitude in our conversation or in our conduct. It's a sinful heart attitude that leads to grumbling. It leads to an expression, complaining or disputing, right? The grumbler is displeased. The grumbler is dissatisfied. And he sits then as judge over or against his brother, ultimately over against God himself. He sits as judge imputing injustice. And then he sinfully expresses that displeasure in his thoughts, words, and actions. And we can complain about everything. We can complain about anything. Uh, we are, by our nature, grumblers and complainers. It's something that we have to put off. It's a sinful heart attitude that we need to put aside. Now, as much as grumbling or complaining is over or against another, leading to the bitter fruits of strife, contention, division, discord, grumbling is ultimately sin against God. It is a prideful self-reliant, self-entitled, self-absorbed, selfish assault on God's own sovereignty. Jeremiah Burroughs describes grumbling as a repulsive state of being that reveals a vile corruption in the heart. Grumbling and complaining. It's not a, in the words of Jerry Bridges, it's not a a respectable sin. It is a repulsive sin. It's not a respectable sin. It is a disgusting display of our sinful depravity right? And we have to dig it out by the roots. Now, having discussed and looked at the grumbler, next, we considered the godly and biblical remedy to that foul distemper, namely the heart attitude and the humble delight that characterizes the truly grateful. Gratitude is an inward heart attitude of thankfulness. That inward heart attitude of thankfulness is cultivated by a humble delight, as we've talked about, And that humble delight then outwardly expressed in thoughts, emotions, words, and actions. Just like grumbling is an inward heart attitude that is outwardly expressed, gratitude is an inward heart. It's a cultivated inward heart attitude that is then expressed. It is outwardly expressed. Emotions, thoughts, words, actions. The inward heart attitude that provides a foundation upon which that grateful spirit is both cultivated and then expressed is comprised of two indispensable qualities or characteristics. The first characteristic is delight. For us to be a grateful people, we have to delight. Delight in the gift and delight in the giver. Gratitude is cultivated when there is genuine delight in the gifts that are given. That goes without saying, isn't it? That's something that we understand. That gratitude is then exponentially increased by a cultivated delight in the one who gives the gifts. We become that much more grateful considering who it is that gives them to us. Now, the second characteristic, if the first characteristic is delight, then the second necessary characteristic to cultivating true gratitude is humility. Our gratitude is exponentially increased the more we cultivate an awareness of how undeserving we are, when we see ourselves as undeserving. If we feel entitled to it, we're not as grateful. Amen? That's how gratitude works. It's a delight in the gifts, exponentially increased by a delight in the giver, married together with our awareness of how undeserving we are. Now, Paul explains in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, that it is by the mercies of God, essentially, that we are grateful people, right? The word mercy, describing the gifts that we've been giving, we don't deserve mercy, do we? 
mercy is something that we don't deserve. We're given something we don't deserve, or we're not given what we do deserve. That's mercy, right? The word mercy describes a gift that's given. The word mercy describes how undeserving we are of those gifts, and it's by the mercies of God, in reference to the living God who has given us those gifts, that we are to be, of all people, a tremendously grateful people. We should be overwhelmed with gratitude. It's by the mercies of God that we should, of all people, be most immeasurably and unceasingly grateful. A grateful people who do not grumble and complain and dispute, but rather grateful people who present ourselves as living sacrifices to God, which is our reasonable service to him. Not allowing ourselves there in Romans chapter 12, verse two, not allowing ourselves to be conformed to the pattern of this grumbling and complaining and disputing present age, but rather transformed into an uncompromisingly, unceasingly grateful people by the renewing of our mind. All of that so that we may prove, Romans chapter 12, verse two, so that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So we have been in this, we've been considering both grumbling and gratitude. And we've been looking at grumbling and gratitude in terms of Paul's framework of putting off and putting on. We're to put off grumbling, we're to put on gratitude. And now we're going to talk, we need to talk through how that is to be practiced. We need to see how that's done in practice. And in order to look at practically how we are to put off grumbling, how we are to put on, put on gratitude, we have to start where Paul starts, right? We have, to, we have to start, we have to begin where Paul begins. And where does Paul begin? Think with me. Through scripture, where does Paul begin with practical Christian living? When Paul wants to tell us to put off and then to put on, when Paul tells us, live this way, what is the basis from which Paul gives us that instruction? What is the foundation on which Paul gives us those commands? Paul gives those commands based on who we are, based on what has been done for us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who we are leads to who we need to become, right? It's statements of indicative, who we are, that lead to statements that are imperatives, what we must do, right? So we begin with who we are in our union with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Turn there with me briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is dealing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 with sin in the church. And it's a particularly grievous sin. And... The, the Corinthians have been negligent in digging that sin out of the church. Now, this, this text would apply to your Christian life. Uh, I, would, I would think that I'm not the only one here in the room that would confess to having sin in my Are you sinners too? Yeah, I think you are too. We all experience sin in our life. Just because we become Christians doesn't mean that we just stop sinning, right? We've got to deal with sin on this side of eternity. On that side of eternity, no more sin to deal with, praise God. Praise God, praise God. May the Lord Jesus Christ come quickly. On this side of eternity, we've got sin to deal with. So this, th these comments from the Apostle Paul about sin in the church at Corinth also apply to sin in your life, okay? Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about sin in the church. Verse six, he says to them, your glorying is not good. Now, they were boastful about their freedom in Christ and boastful about um, being able to live as Christians in Corinth and they weren't dealing effectively with or faithfully with their sin. And Paul equates that with glorying. Well, you can have glorying or boasting in your own life with respect to sin. And what does that look like? You don't walk around with your thumbs under your overall strap saying, look at how good I am at my sin. You know, no Christian in his right mind in the spirit would ever, would ever do that. But what would be characterized as glorying with respect to sin? Being lax about it, not caring about it living your Christian life with no regard to your sin. You say, I'm a Christian, but you have no regard whatsoever for your sin. And you float along in the Christian life without concern about the words that come out of your mouth, the thoughts that you have or the actions that you, the sinful actions that you do, right? That's in a sense, glorying. It's a lax attitude. It's being self-reliant, not depending upon God or depending upon the spirit of God to help us overcome sin. All of that, that boastful self-reliance becomes a prideful glorying. We need to acknowledge our sin. We need to confess our sin. And when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. We can't glory in it in a, in a lax neglect or in a prideful self-reliance. Leaven is a symbol for sin, both in the church and 
in us, okay? Leaven is a symbol for sin, and unchecked sin can spread like a leaven. Sin can spread like a cancer. Sin can spread like gangrene, and you start losing limbs, right? Or you lose your life. He says in verse six, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You better deal with your sin. Deal with your sin. Therefore, verse seven, purge out the old leaven. Isn't this true, right? One complaint leads to another complaint, leads to another complaint, leads to a life of complaining and being a complainer. And it doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation, but if you're a grumbling complainer like an Israelite in the desert, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. God swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. It proves you were never saved to begin with. We are to fight sin. We're to labor against sin. Don't let sin to gain, gain a foothold in your life, right? We're to gain, we're to purge out that old leaven. And he says, purge out that old leaven that you may be a new lump. He's speaking to the church here in verse seven, since you truly are unleavened. In other words, Paul in verse seven, Paul commands the church to become what they already all are. Since you are unleavened, now purge out that leaven of sin. You see? You are unleavened, cleanse out your old sins. You, you are unleavened, having been cleansed of your old sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now purge out the leaven of your sin. Purge out that old leaven. Strive to live in harmony with what Christ has done for you. Notice Paul does not say in verse seven, do this so that you can become that, right? Purge out the old leaven so that you can become unleavened. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, do this because you are that. Purge out that old leaven of your sin because you are unleavened. Become what you are, right? become what you are. Four, verse seven, indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. In other words, Paul connects the indicative to the imperative. The indicative, who we are. It's a statement of fact, who we are. The imperative is who you become. In other words, the commands of Christ. The indicative, who we are. The imperative, now become what you are. Now, Paul expresses the same kind of thought in Colossians chapter three. And in particular, I want you to look at that in verse eight. Colossians three, verse eight. But now... Now, having put off that old man, that old man crucified in Christ, that dead man put aside, so to speak, you are raised to walk in newness life. Having put off the old man, now you yourselves are to put off all these, put off all of these sins associated with that old man. Put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another. That, that's something that we should be actively engaged in doing. The Christian life is not a life of ease, brothers and sisters. It's a life of putting off and putting on. It's a life of spiritual warfare. It's a life of battle. It's a life of work and labor, right? Put off, Paul says, all of these. Put off these sins associated with the old man. Why? Why are we to do that? Verse nine, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. You are a new man, so put off that old man. That old man has been set aside, so now put off all the sins that are associated with that guy. Right? You are a new creation, so put on that way of living that is associated with a new creation. Our identity, brothers and sisters, here's the point, right? Our identity is critical to how we think, believe, and act. Our understanding of who we are is critical to how we think, what we believe, how we conduct ourselves, the things that we say, what we do. We have to understand our identity, and that's where Paul starts. He starts with the indicative, and he leads to the imperative. The Christian life has to begin with who we are in union with Jesus Christ. Paul, in Romans chapter 6, we see it there too, don't we? I am to, in union with Jesus Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, raised with him in resurrection life to walk in newness of life, I am to, Romans chapter six, reckon myself to be dead indeed to sin. Now, that word reckon, I'm to think that way. 
I am to consider myself dead indeed to sin. That's who I am. I am dead to sin and I am to reckon myself alive to God in union with Jesus Christ, my Lord. We're to consider those things, right? Our identity is critical to how we think so that when you're battling sin, when you're trying to live the Christian life, you say to yourself, I am dead to sin. The power of sin has been broken in my life. Jesus Christ has taken the penalty of sin. I can, in the power of his spirit, live for Jesus Christ. I'm not defeated in this. I've been given every spiritual blessing in union with him. Every spiritual blessing. That's, brothers and sisters, it's a foundation of victory in the Christian life, right? Victory over sin. Our identity is critical to how we think and believe and act in the Christian life. The Christian life has to start with who we are, has to start with our union with Jesus Christ. It's in union with him, Paul says, it's in union with him that even now we are being renewed according to his image. We're being renewed after the image of him who created us anew, who made us a new creation. We've been, Paul, Romans chapter eight, predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Now, the Bible essentially anchors then our identity in one of two representative heads. Our identity is connected to one of two representative heads. All of mankind is either identified with the first Adam or in union with the last and true Adam. One of those two. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, listen to this. For since by man came death, that's Adam in the garden. Sin, Romans chapter five, sin entered the world and death through sin. That came through Adam. For since by man came death, by man, the Lord Jesus Christ, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Two representative heads. Just as all those identified with Adam and his sin will certainly die, the soul that sins, it shall surely die, all those who are in union with Jesus Christ shall be made alive. Romans chapter five, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So think with me, our identity may be identified in one of two ways. You may say to yourself, I'm a teacher. It's not who you are. That's what you do, right? I'm a pastor. That's really not who I am. It's what I do, right? We, we think of our identity in these ways. The Bible speaks of our identity in this way. You're either in Adam or you're in Jesus Christ. One of the two, okay? Our, identify, our identity may be defined in one of two ways. You're either in Adam or you are in Jesus Christ. In Adam, you die. You die and Everyone is born in Adam. That's your default position. Everyone is born in Adam. In Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, you are made alive. And wonder upon wonders, there's nothing that you can possibly do to merit being in union with Jesus Christ that is entirely and only through faith in him. Amen? It's a gift, a gift of God's grace. In Christ, you're made alive. We all come to this world united to Adam. Our default position is as a son of Adam, born in sin, dead in trespasses and sins. In due time, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, those who are his own, in due time, we are effectually called by God. We are given new life in union with Jesus Christ. We are made a new creation in him. Our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. We are united to him through faith. We are forgiven of all our sin. We are imputed with his righteousness and we are justified in the sight of God, reconciled to him, amen? We are made sons of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, partakers of the inheritance with the saints in the light, and we will rule and reign with him in eternity as kings and priests to our God. Now, that's who you are if you're in Jesus Christ. That's who I am in Jesus Christ. We will rule and reign with him in eternity. Brothers and sisters, we have to become who we are. You are a king, priest, son in the household of God. You have to become who you are. How do we do that? How do we do that? Colossians chapter three, verse one. Seek those things which are above where Christ is. Listen, you know, 
someone might say, I just give me, give it to me plain, give it to me, to me practical, just tell me what to do. Right? And someone can come to you and say, well, start by reading your Bible. Start by praying. <laughs> what does Paul say, right? These things are intensely practical. Seek the things which are above. Stop dwelling on and occupying yourself merely with things on this earth. Seek those things which are above where Jesus Christ is. Set your mind, set your heart on things above, not on things on the earth because of your union with him, because that's where your inheritance is. That's where your future is. That's where your destiny is. You have died to sin and self in this world and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So set your mind, set your heart, set your thoughts, set all of your moments on those things. In other words, when you have your heart, mind, thoughts, words, deeds, actions, emotions, affections, desires, imaginations, set ambitions, set on those things, then in all of your moments, you're conducting yourself in your moments with respect to those things, right? You live life like a Christian. So when you encounter difficulty in the Christian life, you've got your heart and mind set there. So do you think that your heart and mind set there is going to affect how you think and act and speak in that circumstance? Absolutely. We were, um, we were joking around about the, uh, many, many of you actually, joking around about the uh, illustration of the five-gallon or the jug of milk on the loaf of bread in the bottom, bottom of the grocery basket. If you, are some, if you have your heart and mind set on things above, not on things of the earth, and you have all of your thoughts, your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your imaginations, your joy, your affections, if they are set there, then you won't have to guess about how you're to respond to that situation here, right? Um, you're going to respond like a Christian. You're going to respond with joy and gratitude, with hope, with right? It, you're going to bear long. You're going to be patient. You're going to respond like a Christian. Uh, it's our focus needs to be there, Paul says, Colossians 3.1, so that we know how to live here. You've died. Your life is hidden in him. Therefore, therefore, verse six, right? Put to death then what is earthly in you. Become what you are. Put to death those fleshly lusts associated with the old world. Why? Because you are citizens of a new world. You've been made a new creation. Now that you are citizens of that new world, lay aside that old way of thinking. That's verse eight. Put off wrath, anger, malice, blasphemy. Put off that filthy language. Why? You're not a citizen of this world. You're not a worldling, as Calvin would say. You're not a worldling. You're a citizen of heaven. Speak and act and think and believe like one, right? What's the reason for that? What's the reason that we're to put off those things? Because you have apek duomai. You have stripped off the old clothes of the old man. It's literally what it means there. You've stripped off, those, those old clothes have been stripped off of you and because you have endusamenoi, you have clothed yourselves with the new man. Those old tattered grave clothes have been torn off of you and you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You've been clothed with a new creation, a new creation power from on high. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ was stripped of his tattered garments in death, believers are stripped of their tattered grave clothes in union with him. Stripped of our old identification with the first Adam and clothed in our union with the last and true resurrected Adam. So what are we to do then? We're to put off that old man. We're to put on the new man. Therefore, as we live the Christian life in the power of his spirit, as we live with the blessings of his grace, we must become what we are. If you profess to be in the Lord Jesus Christ in union with him, indwelt by his spirit, and you're not pursuing conformity with Christ's image, if you're not putting off and putting on, if you're not becoming what you are, then you're receiving the grace of God in vain. You're receiving the grace of God in vain. The grace of God, this is Titus chapter two, verse 14, I think it is. The grace of God that appears to all men that brings salvation is the very same grace of God that teaches us to deny ungodliness, that teaches us to deny fleshly lusts, right? Um, that grace goes to work in us. And if we're not allowing that grace to work in us, if we're not pursuing godliness, pursuing conformity to Christ's image, we're receiving the grace of God in vain. We're to put off the old man with its lusts. We're to put on the new man, which is renewed after the image of him who created it. Now that brings us to our text this morning. And 
the purpose of this, brothers is to, and sisters, is to bring us into a state of gratitude. That's where this text leads. It leads to gratitude, thanksgiving, being poured out to God. So it brings us to our text beginning in verse 12 and ultimately to a state of gratitude and praise to God's grace. Verse 12, therefore, thinking of who we are now, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The root word there for grace is the same root word that is translated grateful or thankful in our text. It's literally, it's it's singing with gratitude, with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, whatever you do, verse 17, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All of this leads to gratitude. Gratitude flows from all of this. You want to cultivate gratitude? Then put on tender mercies. When you put on tender mercies, you'll be grateful. You see? All flows and connects together. Think with me now. Because of who you are in union with Jesus Christ, you must become who you are. Okay? Paul begins with three words to describe who you are, your identity with Jesus Christ, in union with Jesus Christ. He describes you as elect, holy, and beloved. Who are we? We are elect, holy, and beloved. That's moral and that's ethical, right? The moral, moral and ethical clothing that Paul is telling us to put on as citizens of a new world is the clothing that is fashionable, if you will, or fitting for being elect, holy, and beloved. It's the clothing that is appropriate to being elect, holy, and beloved. I was once to, uh, years ago, I was invited to a quinceanera. Many of you may know what a quinceanera is. I, I did not know what a quinceanera was at the time. I was invited to a quinceanera. And when I was invited to the quinceanera, I was told uh, it's going to be a tropical theme, right? So dress appropriately dress appropriately to a tropical, tropical thing. And I was a, a young man. So when I think tropical, I think flip-flops. I think, uh, you know, swim trunks, <laughs> tank top, right? So that's what I wore to the quinceanera. I wore, you know, board shorts <laughs> or a t-shirt. Uh, I, I think I brought a grass skirt just to be funny. I had a lay around my neck. Like that's how I went to this quinceanera. Um, my clothing was not appropriate or fitting to the event. <laughs> when we showed up, a tropical theme, it meant tuxedo with a floral bow tie and a floral cummerbund. The dresses, you couldn't fit them through a door. Like the, the, they were these gowns, these beautiful gowns. This was a formal event that I showed, to, showed up to in flip-flops. <laughs> um, that clothing was not appropriate to the event. Okay, oftentimes in this life, brothers and sisters, our clothing is not fitting for who we are. Our clothing is not appropriate to who we are. Put off that old, those old, filthy, dirty rags and put on who you are. Put on who we are. Put on clothing, Paul says, that is fitting with those who are elect, holy, and beloved. We've got to think that way. We have to allow our identity to to impact who we know ourselves to be so that we then go to work on, to use a figure of speech, we go to work on how we're dressed. Make sense? Put on what you are. First, we are elect. We are chosen by God. Ephesians chapter one, verse four, we are chosen by God in identification with Jesus Christ before the world was. You were chosen by God before creation, before Adam, 
before you were born, before you had ever done anything good or evil, you were chosen by God. The reason that you are in union with Jesus Christ, the reason that you are to live as those raised to new life in him is because you have been chosen to do so. You have been chosen by God as an object of his grace and mercy, an object of his grace and mercy upon which he will demonstrate in the ages to come, he will demonstrate the exceeding greatness of his kindness upon you to the glory of his own grace, to the to the, the magnifying of his own person. He will pour out on you goodness and kindness and grace in eternity to demonstrate the glory of his own person upon you in eternity because you have been chosen, because he has of the good pleasure of his own will, he has determined to do that upon you in eternity. You're the beneficiaries of his love, of his blessing. You have been predestined to be conformed to his image before the foundation of the world, before anything was. You were predestined to be conformed into Christ's own image. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity, you are, con you are predestined to be conformed in his image. You must become then what you are. Second, we are elect. Second, we are holy. God repeatedly tells Israel, you shall be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. You're to be as I am, holy, set apart. We say this, see the same principle at work here in verse 13. If you have a complaint against someone, forgive them. Why? Why? Because Christ is forgiving and Christ has forgiven you. So when you have a complaint against someone, what's the command of scripture? Forgive them. Forgive them. Why? Because Christ has forgiven you. Christ has forgiven you. We are to become like him, predestined to be conformed after his image. Did you deserve forgiveness? No. Forgive. Forgive as Christ forgave you. We are to be practically and ethically and morally holy. First, because God is holy and Christ is holy. And second, we are to be practically holy because we are positionally holy. We have been set apart, set apart from sin, set apart from self, set apart from this world, and set apart to God. We are his, we're not our own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, in your members, which are not yours, they are his, right? We are to become what we are. The Lord sets us apart to himself, sets us apart to his work, sets us apart to his glory, sets us apart to his worship. Titus chapter two, verse 14, Paul describes us literally there as his own possession, his own possession. We've been bought with a price. We are not our own. So the word holy suggests then not only a fact about those who have been united to Jesus Christ through faith. It's not only a fact that we have been set apart to him, apart from common use, apart from this world, to his use, to him. But it's also suggesting a responsibility then, isn't it? It's a responsibility to those who have been united to Jesus Christ. We, we are not simply to live as we please. We are to be holy as he is holy. And when I say that too, for the Christian, to live unholy is not to live as they please. That makes sense? The Christian doesn't want to live in sin. The Christian is grieved by sin. The, sin, the, the Christian longs for that old man to go away right? Go away. Who will free me, rescue me, deliver me from the, the body of this death, right? That's Paul in Romans 7. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's going to do it. He's going to separate me from the body of this death. That's what a Christian wants. So a Christian to live in sin is not to live as they please. Do so you know what I mean when I use that phrase? We're not to live as we please. We're not to live in accord with his flesh. We're to put on who we are. We're to live as citizens of a new creation, a new world. We're not to live in accord with the old man. You have been chosen by God. You have been set apart to him. You are not your own. We're not to live as autonomous creatures. We are his. In him, we live and move and have our being. Third, brothers and sisters, we are beloved. We are beloved. Everywhere, everywhere, the Bible refers to a peop the people of God as beloved not owing to anything meritorious in us, 
but simply do the good pleasure of God who determined to set his love upon us. In other words, God does not say, think about this with me. God does not say, I love you because. We do, right? That's not the love of God. God does not say, I love you because. God does not say, God does not say, I love you if. God doesn't say that. That's not the love of God toward you. Sometimes we live our Christian lives as though that's the case. I love you if. That's not the love of God toward us. God does not say, I love you if, to those who are in Jesus Christ. God simply says, I love you. God simply says, I love you. His love is simply not conditioned on your performance. It's not, his love is not conditioned on your performance. His love is not conditioned on anything else to do with you. It's not because you were somehow lovely, right? These, all these elect, holy, beloved are all three descriptions that the Lord has used of Israel in the old covenant, under the old covenant. That's, that, those are covenantal descriptions. And God loved Israel in the same way. It, it's a way of connecting. These three terms used by the apostle Paul in Colossians chapter three are a way of connecting, if you will, our understanding of Old Testament Israel and their covenant unfaithfulness with the covenant of God in the new covenant under the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's covenant people under the covenant of grace, identifying true Israel with that faithless old covenant Israel. Make sense? He uses the same terms to, to apply brothers and sisters to us. This is God fulfilling his redemptive plans and purposes in true Israel under the kingship of Jesus Christ. We are elect, holy, and beloved in ways that that ethnic national Israel under the Sinaitic covenant could not be in ways that they failed to be. God sees to it under the new covenant. God doesn't say, I love you because. God doesn't say, I love you if. God simply says, I love you. And God says, I love you in spite of, doesn't he? Can you see how all of this leads to gratitude? These gifts of God. God is the one who gives them. We delight in the gifts because they are spectacular. And we Delight in the one who gives the gifts because he is the most delightful. <laughs> we cannot fathom a person more delightful, right? We delight in him because of who he is and what he's done. And we are undeserving. What does that lead to? Humble delight in the gift and in the giver, acknowledging our own state of being un entirely undeserving leads to Gratitude, that's the recipe for gratitude, a grateful people. Romans chapter five, verse eight. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He says, I love you in spite of, and then God acts on that love by sending his own son. It's staggering. John Owen says this, unacquaintedness, listen to this, unacquaintedness with our mercies Unacquaintedness or a lack of familiarity, a lack of understanding of our privileges is our sin as well as our trouble. Now listen to what Owen says about that. We hearken not to the voice of the spirit which is given to us that we may know the things that are freely bestowed on us of God. We hearken not to his voice through his word, the spirit of God through his word. This makes us go heavily when we might rejoice and to be weak where we might be strong in the Lord. How few of the saints are experimentally or experientially acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. And immediate, not meaning quick, but immediate meaning, meaning his very presence with us. The transcendent God is imminent. He is near to us in his person. That communion with the Father in love. How few of his saints are acquainted with this privilege of holding that kind of communion with God because they don't understand those things. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questionings are there of his goodwill and his kindness? How many of you have experienced that, right? At the best, many think there is no sweetness at all in him toward us, but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. I'm just unlovable. The only reason that God loves me the only way that he can is because of 
what Jesus Christ has done. And even then it's a reluctant love. It's a begrudging love. The only way he can love me is he, he has to love me through the sacrifice of his own son. In other words, we paint the love of God like that. And that's not the love of God toward us. Owen is saying that the love of God is free and, and bountiful. It's not a begrudging love. Uh, he doesn't love us through a, right? That kind of expression. It is true that, all, that Christ alone is the way of that love. Christ alone is how through that, is the way that that love is bestowed on us. But Owen says, the free fountain and spring of all is in the bosom of the Father. Eternal life was with the Father and is manifest, manifested unto us, 1 John 1, 2. Owen says, let us then, I the Father as love. Let him look at, look at him, he is love. Look not on him as an always lowering father, but as one most kind, most tender. Let us look on him by faith as one that has had thoughts of kindness toward us from everlasting. Before anything was, he looked at you with love. Men cannot abide with God in spiritual meditations. He loses soul's company by their lack of this insight into his love. Think of the communion that we have with God if we came into a full embrace of the way that God loves us. That's part of the Christian life is growing in our understanding of the way that God loves us, growing in that understanding, and then living in light of that understanding. And what Owen is saying is that we are missing out we're missing out in our Christian life when we don't understand and embrace the way that God loves us. He loses soul's company by their lack of their insight into this love. They fix their thoughts only on his terrible majesty, severity, and greatness, and so their spirits are not endeared. Would a soul continually eye his everlasting tenderness and compassion, his thoughts of kindness that have been from old, his present gracious acceptance then it could not bear an hour's absence from him. Whereas now, perhaps, it cannot watch with him one hour. What Owen is saying is that when we come to an understanding of God's love for us, when we embrace the reality of that love through faith, we want to spend every moment dwelling upon him, thinking upon him, living and acting in his service, worshiping and praising him. Him, pouring out our hearts in gratitude to him. And if we, for one moment, for one moment, came to a true understanding of how we are loved by the living God, that would be our existence. And here's the joy of that. Here's the joy of that. That's the way it'll be in eternity. We'll live in an unfettered understanding of his love toward us. And brothers and sisters, we will revel in that for all eternity. We will glory in it. We will praise him for it. We will, we will pour out worship because of it. And we will be in eternal bliss because we'll be in that kind of communion with our God who has determined to set his love upon us. See, what a, it's just indescribable, right? Words fail. His love is not a love merely of duty. His love is not a begrudging love. His love is a love of delight. He delights in you. His love is a love of affection. It's a love of warmth. Listen to Isaiah 62. In verse five, as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's not merely a love of duty. That is a love of delight. Love of tenderness. More shockingly, think with me, more shockingly, the Father loves you as the Father loves the Son. You might have trouble grasping that. We do. But that's what the Bible says. The Father loves you. If you are in union with Jesus Christ, you put your faith and trust in Him, the Father loves you as He loves the Son. Listen, 1 John chapter 4, verse 17 commend you to commit it to memory because as he is, speaking of Jesus Christ, as he is, so are we in this world. Not only in eternity, in this world. As the son is, 
so are we in this world. As the Father looks upon the Son, he looks upon us because we're in union with the Son. John chapter 17, verse 23, the Lord's high priestly prayer. Listen to the, the, the prayer of the Lord. The Lord prays that the world may know that you have sent me. He's praying to God, asking this of God. That the world may know that you have sent me and that the world may know that you have loved them as you have loved me. <laughs> the Lord prays that. Do you think that prayer is answered? Amen. That's not a, a love of mere duty. That is a love of delight. It is a tender love of warmth and affection. And that is the love of the Father toward us. We are, his, we are chosen of God. We are set apart. Brothers and sisters, we are beloved. That, okay? Knowing that, right? That is the foundation of Christian living. Try as you may in any other way. You're not going to do it unless you understand those things, right? There's so many. And it's just this, um, I don't fully know how to explain it. People that have no interest in the word of God because there's no interest in knowing God. There's no interest in, in, in apprehension or an understanding of his grace and his mercy and his love toward us. Just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do, right? That's their 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 view of, the, of religion, their view of the Christian life. I'm supposed to go to, oh yeah, I'll go to church, right? I'm supposed to evangelize. Yeah, I'll evangelize. I'm supposed to give. Okay, I'll give. Just tell me what to do. And that's their view of the Christian life. That's not the Christian life. Just doing what you're supposed to do. Um, God gives us a circumcised heart. He indwells us with his spirit so that we would have this kind of love and devotion and communion with him. I will be their God and they will be my people. Right? It's that kind of communion. Knowing this is foundational to Christian living. Knowing this is foundational to Christian worship. Knowing this is foundational to Christian devotion, Christian service. Thinking this way, right? Being possessed by these realities, this is of the essence of Faith is to believe, the essence of faith is to believe these things. If you will not embrace these, then no practical tell me what to do kind of instruction is going to work for you. It's just a temporary band-aid, right? Okay, I'll come to church. How long is that going to last? You need to be possessed by these realities. That kind of, that kind of, you know, Heartless ritualism uh, doesn't go far. It will not suffice. That's why Paul starts here. He, he, Paul starts with who you are, your identity in him, in Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved, therefore, you are elect, holy, and beloved. Therefore, become what you are. Put on tender mercies, verse 12, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Hang in there with me. By the grace of God, a new man was created. It's the same grace of God by which the new man will then manifest a life in accord with that new creation. In this case, we should put on tender mercies, literally bowels of mercy, a heart of compassion. We should put on a heart of compassion. Grace and mercy. A heart of compassion is grace and mercy towards someone in difficult circumstances. It's like our brother was referencing in the call to repentance this morning. We're not to gloat or glory in their despair. We're to put on tender mercies. We're to combine that with kindness and humility. It refers to a tender and affection consideration of someone else as esteemed more highly than yourself. The word meekness in verse 12 refers to gentleness. Long-suffering refers to forbearance. Forbearance is more than simply patience, right? Forbearance suggests patience with someone not only because they're slow, right? but patience with someone in the face of provocation. That's what forbearance is. We're to be forbearing with them in the face of ongoing provocation. Provocation, 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 provocation. What's my response as a new creation in Christ in union with him as elect, holy, and beloved? Forbearance, patience, tender mercies, compassion, gentleness, meekness, right? That's the way that we're to respond. A Christian is really difficult to offend. Why? Because they have put on tender mercies, kindness, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering. 
They've put on the new man. They're really difficult to offend. And people walk around all the time offended, (laughs) offended. Put on a heart of compassion, forbearance in the face of ongoing provocation. These qualities, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, these qualities are the very opposite of what we've seen much of recently. Aren't they? The very opposite of that. Let them never, never be named among us. Let them never be named among us. We've got to press on, put off that filthy old man and put on the new man's being renewed after the image of the one who created it. You can see how all this fits well with it, then overlaps. It overlaps with the qualities that follow in verse 13, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Verse 13 specifically relates to those who are offended. When you are offended, you are to bear long with one another. You are to forgive one another. Bear long, forgive. Why? Because Christ has forgiven you. And we're to follow his example. In Matthew 18, we won't turn there, but the Lord tells a parable in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant. The unforgiving servant is forgiven this incalculable debt. They don't have enough time in their lifetime to repay that debt. And his master forgives him. So he goes off on his merry way. He encounters one of his own people who owes him a ridiculously small debt by comparison, and he puts his hands around his throat, so to speak, and forces him to pay all. Well, when the master hears about it, he says, take that one. I'd forgiven him a great debt. You couldn't forgive him a far lesser debt? That's the point of the parable. Throw him to the torturers. Cast him into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, that one goes to hell. Why? Because they're not living in accord with the new man. They were never a new creation. It proves that they were never a new creation. So my heavenly father also will do to each of you if you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Paul would express that lesson this way in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. Forgive one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ has forgave you, so you also must do. We are to love as he has loved us. The brothers and I have been talking, um, obviously, for weeks about all that we've been through, all that's been going on. And, and one of the realities, you know, that has uh, come to full light in the face of all our adversity lately um, is this. And I, I do want to spend some time talking with you about it and us talking about it together. But the Lord Jesus Christ loved us by giving his own life for us, dying on the tree in our stead. He set aside his kingly robes, as it were, and took upon himself the humiliation of our sinful flesh. Not sin in of himself, right? He was sinless, but took upon himself flesh. Took upon the appearance of a man. He humbled himself, came in the appearance of a man. He lived, he walked the the dirt of our existence, as it were, for the, the extent of his life. And then as a sinless person, as a sinless man, went to the cross and died our substitute bearing scoffing, bearing shame, bearing such hostility, the hands of sinners against himself, Hebrews 13. That's the way that he loved us. Paul says in scripture that we, in our service to him, are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions by continuing his work. We fill up what is lacking in his afflictions by continuing his work. We love him in that way. Now, if you think about that with me, we have opportunity to love him in the same way or in similar fashion to the way in which he has shown love to us. And brothers and sisters, the only opportunity we have to do that is in this life. We'll not be able to express our love to him in that way in eternity. We'll face no opposition in eternity. We'll face no suffering in eternity. We'll face no difficulty, no adversity in eternity. The time in which we have opportunity to love him, to express our devotion to him, to express our love to him, the time that we have to do that in, similar, in a similar way, in an analogous way to the way in which he loved us is right now during this life and during this life only. Don't you want to love him that way? Right? When, when, you, when you see trial, when you see difficulty, when you see persecution, opposition through that lens, I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I want to serve him. And I want to express, that's what faith is. 
That's what that service and devotion is. It's, it's an expression of love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, when we're not with the Lord Jesus Christ, we walk by faith, not by sight. And that love and devotion expressed keenly in this life in the face of opposition, in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty, adversity. And that's the point essentially there of Hebrews 13. Lest you become discouraged in your own souls, lest you become discouraged, consider him who endured such hostility against himself at the hands of sinners and be encouraged. Love him that way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us go outside the camp to him, bearing his reproach. And let us do that with joy, counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. All of that, brothers and sisters, leads us to gratefulness. It's only through all of that that we have peace and unity. Verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were also called in one body. The word therefore rule expresses a government. The peace, his peace should rule, should govern our hearts. And verse 15, be thankful. Often, the peace of God that should govern, should rule our hearts, is cast aside for the sake of a complaint. We cannot allow that to happen. We cannot allow that to be a ca- a, the case. Don't cast aside the peace of God for the sake of your complaint. Be thankful. All of these precious qualities produce a heart of gratitude, and it is a heart of gratitude that produces all of these precious qualities. Ingratitude marks paganism, idolatry. That's Romans 1. Ingratitude marks the false teachers that were plaguing the church at Coloss, plaguing the church at Corinth, as we saw last week. At the end of the day, gratitude, rather than grumbling, marks the Christian. It's with gratitude that we sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs in our hearts to God. It's with gratitude. William Hendrickson said this, The word of Christ should govern every thought, every word, every deed, Yes, even the hidden drives and motivations of every member, every faculty, and thus should bear sway among them all and this richly bearing much fruit. This will happen when believers heed the word, handle it rightly, hide it in their hearts, and hold it forth to others as being in truth the word of life. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with gratitude, charis, singing with charis in your hearts to the Lord. The word for grace there is a word there from which we get Eucharist, giving of thanks. Uh, the root of that word is the word translated gratitude or thankfulness. We are to sing with gratitude in our hearts to the Lord. Singing is a way that we express our gratitude, you see? Verse 17, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do there is intentionally all-encompassing, word or deed. When I'm about to speak, I should consider whether or not I can give thanks to God for what I'm about to say. When you, open your, when you go to open your mouth, you should consider whether or not you can give thanks to God for what you are about to say. That's how we avoid a lot of ungodly speech. Amen? When I'm about to act, I should consider whether or not I can give thanks to God for what I'm about to do. I should be able to thank God for the fruit of my words. I should be able to thank God for the fruit of my actions. I should be able to thank God for all of them. In whatever, that's verse 17, in whatever I say or do, I should be able to thank God for the opportunity to say or do, do it as that which is done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thinking that way will protect you from a lot of really sinful and ungodly actions, attitudes, beliefs, right, thoughts. And brothers and sisters, we are called to give thanks to God the Father through him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, in the end, is how we put off grumbling and we put, off, put on gratitude. Amen? It's a tall order. We need help by his spirit. We can't do that in our own strength. We need to rely upon him and pray for it. We'll talk about, about that more certainly in the weeks to come. For now, pray with me. Let's thank the Lord. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not leave us to our own devices in this, leave us to our own strength or rather our own weakness. You've not left us orphans. You've come to us by your spirit. And we praise you and thank you that we have your strength, your word, your word to guide us, your strength to supply us, your spirit 
to work in us, to conform us in the image of your own son. I pray that you would do that. Make us a Help us to put on these tender mercies. Put on new man. Let's create us. Be the new man. Help us to do these things. Work in us according to your will and your Your glory and our good. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.